Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Hi, well, welcome you here on what is a somewhat frigid day here. I um, have only really one announcement for you. I would particularly encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to, at least to view that message. I really believe that to be a really critical one for going forward. Um, it was entitled, Where Do You Live? And I want to read something to you really quickly, because uh, Mickey Badlamentes had um, a real poetic element that's been hitting him in this last year, just a flood of, of things. He's kind of seeing everything in poems. And at the end of the service, um, before the service even concluded, I think, he wrote this, and I want to read it to you. Titled, Where Do You Live? In past delights or pains, in future losses or gains, in searching for new places and friends or dwelling on your past dead ends, where do you live? In moments in your past that you wished would last, but time moved on much too fast, where do you live? In the future you fear, where unknowns draw near, and things you can't control terrify your soul, where do you live? Your life is in a breath, but not the one drawn at birth, nor the one given up at death, not the one yesterday, nor the one tomorrow, but in the breath right now that you have borrowed. The moment here and now is the one that God allows, and where you'll find the life he gives, that is where you live. I just thought that was brilliant, and I want to share it with you guys. So if you see Mickey... Would you stand with me one more time? I just want to read this passage of Scripture to you. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, anoint your word, anoint our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This title today, The Incarnational Church, this is like this heavy theological doctrinal statement that just reading the title is is really a sure bet to put you to sleep and just to drift right off, okay? Because it just sounds like we're going to get into something really meaty. And in part we are, um, and in part we're not. The phrase incarnational can be the first thing that kind of throws us off a little bit in the process. Um, If we look at this phrase, incarnation, the term incarnation basically means to come in the flesh. It literally means God in the flesh. It's one of, if not the central doctrine of Christianity, that, that God, who is spirit, um, at some point in time, uh, who has been for all eternity, invades human space 
and comes in the flesh. This is what this passage is talking about, that in the beginning was the Word, or, and it's, a, it's another phrase, I won't get into all the doctrine stuff for it, of who Jesus is. And Jesus has always been and always will be, as has the Spirit and as has the Father. But in this moment, saying the Word, or Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. But then the Word becomes flesh. This term, incarnation, to become flesh, to to walk among us, to connect with us on some level or another. This is a central doctrine of Christianity and of the faith. There's nothing else really quite like it. There's, um, there is something that a, a, a physician, a surgeon dealt with years ago that's tried to give some flavoring of why God did this and what this was about. And um, it was a surgeon. His name was Richard Selzer. And in cutting out a tumor on a young woman's face, he cut a nerve in the woman's cheek in order to get at that tumor. And the result was that her mouth was evidently permanently misshapen a bit by the process. And Dr. Selzer was somewhat uncertain as to how the young husband was going to receive this new look that the wife had. Um, he was encouraged when the young guy came in and he was warm and caring to his wife, even joking about her new, you know, cute look. But what really caught him was what happened next. When the doctor's encouragement turned somewhat to awe, when he saw this young husband bend down towards his wife and twist his own lips to conform to hers and to give her a kiss. We have been, as a human race, misshapen by sin and despair. There's a twistedness to who we are. But God comes in the flesh and realigns himself in order to conform to kiss us, to draw us to himself, to enable us to actually come into the presence of God. One ancient writer, St. Athanasius, said, He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But initially he comes just to engage us just to become like us, just to become accessible to us and to restore us from our broken condition. The vast majority of historians overwhelmingly believe Jesus was historical, that he actually existed, that a person named Jesus walked this earth. The general consensus amongst most people is that he was a really great guy. He was a good teacher. Nobody, for the most part, says that Jesus was a loser or a horrible person or here. They all respect him on some level or another. Other religions, other beliefs even have them in their pantheon. But C.S. Lewis, in one of his more brilliant moments, said that we have a problem with this whole issue because Jesus said that he was God. And so you're left with the conclusion that he was either lying about that or that he was a lunatic and completely insane, or that he was who he said he was, God in the flesh. But you can't just say he was a great teacher or some um, historical figure. And so if he was in fact Lord, if he was in fact who he said he was, what are the implications? And what are the implications for us? In mankind as a whole is one thing, but we're talking today about the incarnational church. And why am I drawing to that phrase? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The writer here, Paul, saying, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is what? The church. The church. 
He's making an association here of Christ's body and that being, in fact, the church. Now, I don't want to get too weird about this, and I don't want this to go off into some far eastern religious thought or pantheistic feeling, but what he's saying here and what other passages would allude to is that we literally become his body, that we become his hands and feet, that as Christ was incarnate, God incarnate, that as he's left and and leaves the Holy Spirit with us, that we become, in essence, his body and his function on this earth. There's a story I've shared many times before, but it's still worth the classic element of it, of the, of the young kid who's staying over at his grandmother's house in this version of it. And it's late at night, and he's upstairs, and, and he's afraid of the dark, and he cries out for his grandmother. So his grandmother takes the long steps all up there and says, you know, comforts him and encourages him, I'm here. And he's like, yeah, I know, but it's just scary. And everything else like that. You'll be fine. It'll be good, you know. Um, just realize Jesus is with you too. And okay, fine. So he goes back down the steps all the way back down into a rocking chair and sure enough, a few minutes later, the kid's crying out again. It's scary. It's dark. I want to help again. And she's like, I don't want to go up those stairs again. And she says, remember, I told you, Jesus is with you. He's right next to you. And his statement is, yes, but right now I need someone with skin on. <laughs> There's something about the physical touch. There's something about that, that, that contact that has meaning to us. I think one of the most devastating issues of the whole experience of these last two years was the separation, the isolation, the fact that we were separated off and in many ways um, hadn't seen friends. I saw kids that I hadn't seen for like a year, and next thing I know is they're like full-fledged senior citizens. I mean, it's incredible, you know? And, And you see that gap in time that happens. Many of us. Many of us came back onto this location, this place that has meant worship and God's presence to us, and we wept tears just coming together and being with one another once again. There's something about the touch. There's something about having skin on and having this physical engagement that is critical to not only who we are, but what we do. If we continue on, in the scripture, and we accept that somehow this physicality, uh, that Christ as he resides within us, that, that we are that function, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us more on this. As a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay, humble. I can do that. In fact, I'm the very best that anyone's ever been at being humble. <laughs> gentle. I, I can do gentle. <sighs> Patient, uh, I'm gone. I'm out right there, okay? But this is what we're called to be. Humble. Gentle. These words are for you. These words are for me. Patient. Bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then this line here, there is one body and one Spirit. As the Holy Spirit inhabits us at salvation, we become part of the body of Christ. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, a lot of oneness going on here. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 13, it continues on and says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers, so that they may draw great numbers to themselves, and have great attention, and have great glory upon themselves, and be lifted up high among... That's not the scripture. It says that he gave these individuals, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And this is where Anastasius was saying, he became what we are, that we, he might make us what he is that we come together and in teachings and in action and other things that we recognize we're the body of Christ and so we mature so that we become more like Christ in the process. Now notice that statement of we become mature. Let me say, all of us age, but not all of us grow up. Are you following that? Okay. All of us age, but... Let's even just say a whole bunch of us never grow up. We never mature. We never develop. We're at the same place that when we first met Christ. We're still 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds. We're little babies still sucking on milk. We're not standing strong and moving into the fullness of what we're intended to. And we're saying that part of coming together as a body, part of these things is to build us up into the fullness of who Christ is so that we not just age, but that we also grow up. Let me be really blunt. I was not a big fan of the church growing up. I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. And what that meant was that um, every, every old lady in that church thought they were my mother. And so after service, we would typically run around. I don't know why kids do this. To this day, I, but after the first service, there's kids running everywhere. And, and I'm sitting here going... That's cool. You know, when I was a kid, we ran all over the place after service, before service, not usually during service. And for some reason, I'm not sure how, if it was how I bent or how I went sliding across the floor, or whatever, I would rip the knees out of, out of my slacks. And, and when it was jeans, that was one thing. My mom would put a patch on them. Sometimes it was nicer clothing, supposedly, and she'd have to put a patch on those. And I don't know how many knees I had patched up um, in my clothing. But what really got me was, was being the pastor's kid, there were these expectations that would come upon you. And like I said, everyone felt they were their mother and stuff. And so I'd go running. Everyone else would go running around. Everyone would just kind of ignore that. You know, they do whatever else. But I'd go running around, and some, some dear old saint of the church would be inclined to grab hold of me and say, what would your parents say? What would your father say if they saw you now? You're to be an example of everybody. <laughs> what would your father say? And I'd sit here and say, well, why don't you just go over and ask him right now, you old hag? You know, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> Now, that was from the heart, okay? Okay? From the mouth came, yes, ma'am. But in the heart, oh, my gosh. Okay? And then when I saw the politics, my parents, I respected greatly, and they suffered for the faith, to be frank. We were always poor. Just were. That was what we grew up with. And the politics I saw... And all that was part of that, I, I was not a big fan of the church. I never rejected God because I was never that stupid. 
Let me be clear. You reject God. You're beyond stupid. Have issues with his church. I get it. Realize, though, at the end result, if you accept Christ and, and finally get to, to the sense of that, that you're part of that then, too. And so God, in his infinite wisdom and bizarre sense of humor, has made me in ministry for the last 40 years of my life. And I recognize increasingly the value. We can't always trust human beings, but we can trust God. And there's a sense of trusting God when he's at work in other people. The world sees the church oftentimes as arrogant, judgmental, and harsh. And sometimes that's true. More often it's a, a fixation of the media. What I see are people that have been faithful over the decades. What I see are people who serve humbly. What I see are people who give treasure and time to minister to those who have um, less than they have. What I've seen is people who have come and overcome great obstacles to become the individuals that God has called them to do. I see a church completely different than the church I saw of my childhood with a child's eyes and what the world often wants to put down and push away, that the church is, in fact, incarnational, that the, that the presence of Christ resides in the church. And so let's talk for just a quick moment the things that we don't say and have not spoken about at offering in times past. Let's talk about the idea that, that, that we take these things. Where does this money go? Well, we have this really great fund that we use for parties on a regular basis, and that's where most of it goes. There's these offshore accounts that we also use for later events that we have. And then, um, of course, a lot of it's just shoes. A lot of shoes. A lot of shoes. Mickey, he loves his shoes. You know? No. Some of it goes to keeping these lights on when their power is not shutting off on us. Some of it goes into, you know, heating and cooling and other issues that need to be taken care of and, and repairs and things of this nature. Some of it goes to someone like a Jerry Bain, one of our staff members, in a salary as he maintains the building and makes sure things are clean and safe for you as you come into this place. Or Julius Davis, one of our staff who handles the finances to make sure that things are done with integrity and properly and that the accounting is maintained. Or someone like John Freeman who works deeply with our youth and our young adults and pours his life into these kids. How many of you realize that our young people have suffered greatly in these last two years of time? And so it's made a safe place for them. Jeff uh, um, Brown, who's poured it into the children's area, that had children that have come back years later and said, you were instrumental in the formation of my spiritual life and where things have come in my life. Or Mickey, who shapes these incredible messages and, and, and has run Detroit Bible Institute for us and so many other things that I can name and, and then occasionally plays um, a, a halfway decent violin. <laughs> So it goes into things like this, but it's deeper than that. It's far more reaching than that in what our giving does and what happens with it. In this past year alone, our engagement in Detroit, we are part of what is called the Faith-Based Coalition, founded by our good friend Bishop Daryl Harris, co-founded with us alongside a gathering of churches in the Detroit area that are pouring into Detroit, particularly in the area of helping victims of violence and trying to reshape the city. Cease Fire, something that Bishop Harris directly runs, that is involved in stopping the violence and the gun violence and all the other issues that are happening in Detroit, so much so that I don't know if you kept track of this recently, guys, 
But Detroit is the only major city in this country where violence and gun violence did not go up. It went down by 5%. This is the only city. And that is due in large part to things that you have invested in, in your giving, that has enabled people like Bishop Harris and others who have done this. Victims assistance that we've offered, to putting people in hotels and other things that have suffered from these things. This has all been part of what's been going forward on this. We've been continuing in Osborne, our commitment to that community. And while we had to step back a little bit because of the COVID situation, we're now ramping that back up again. And engagement in high school there at Osborne, as well as the community as a whole, um, the SOAR program that's uh, educating kids and reading that are, are having a disabilities in these school systems over there. Um, if you don't learn to read by the time you're th- uh, uh, in third grade, you have a 90-plus percent chance of ending up either in jail or in poverty. And so we are going in and we're being mentors to these kids and working with them and coming alongside. I mentioned Detroit Bible Institute. Detroit Bible Institute is, a, is a, an, an establishment of learning here for the, the scriptures that we are partnering with other churches like Bethesda, Stony Creek Church, Hope Baptist, Fellowship Chapel, others. We have had in this past year alone of the students that have been on location here studying, over 30 churches have been a part of that, have had people here. And we minister to the broader community, lifting that up and understanding the things of God and the scripture. We've had a pantry that has fed um, uh, hundreds and thousands of people at this point in time that we've offered food in the midst of this time period. We're feeding children in Guatemala uh, through Missionary Ventures International. been doing this for years. In Costa Rica, we were with our partner there with Pastor Miguel Rojas and Karina. And their involvement, they had a dental care thing involved there where they're providing dental care that's almost impossible to get there. They have uh, women who are coming to the city who have no place to stay that have breast cancer that have to then provide extra cash for their stay so they can get their treatment done. They've now established something called the Pink House where these ladies can come and stay and be ministered to and hear the gospel while they're being treated for their cancer. And we're engaging with that and ongoing support with what Pastor Rojas is doing in Costa Rica. We've got a free health clinic, Trinity Health Clinic, that we've just this year chosen to partner with so that individuals in Utica and the surrounding areas can come into that clinic and get health care for free. Compassion Pregnancy. That's working with young women who are in the midst of a pregnancy and processing what they're going to do about life. And as we support life, we go beyond just supporting it. We put our money where our mouth is and we have engaged financially to support the ministry that they do with that. A church plant in Florida from one of our former staff members, uh, um, Steve Gill. Uh, You heard from Kent and Erica who are NFL chaplains for uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, All these are things that you have supported that the giving goes towards that we're Christ's hands and feet, not just in praise and worship and developing, but reaching out, touching, engaging people. Volunteers on this place here, forget volunteering with youth or children. I'm talking hard skills like electricians and cutting cutting trees, not cutting wires, they do that too, but cutting trees, (laughs) cutting down trees, all sorts of skill sets they bring. Almost $50,000 worth of just volunteer work that some of you have offered and have done. Over $200,000 has gone out from this congregation, not just to the ministries here, but to touch Detroit, other countries, other places. You've fed those who are hungry. You've helped heal those who are sick. You've shared the gospel with those who have lost hope. You've helped the victims of violence, and you've helped to end cycles of crying. These are all things that you have done as the church of Jesus Christ recognizing that the church is incarnational, that there's something shaping inside of us that as we give, 
We become Christ in that moment of time. We lift up all those who are struggling. There are those of our people who are in medical situations that have had difficult times, and we've reached out and encouraged them. There are those of our professionals who are in education. I'll tell you what, dealing with education today is tough. There are so many conflicting issues, and we have people that are involved in that. We've lifted them up and encouraged them. This is all the church. It's not the giving that I want you to see. It's a matter of who we are. Maybe you can't enable financially. If, if, if so, maybe you should start, maybe not. But consider everything that's being done by those who are serving. If we are, in fact, the incarnational church, the body of Christ, Jesus with skin on, then it's not just a matter of giving, though. It's not just a matter of showing up in worship, which is essential. It's not just a matter of volunteering, but a central part of being the incarnational church is that we do what we're doing right now, that we meet together. You're not getting this one. The incarnational church, if incarnation means to be in the flesh, then there is something that is hugely significant when we come together in worship. You're you're starting to, but you're still, there's a glaze. Okay. Do you know one of the most challenging things that's come in recent times has been the issue of live streaming? And let me be really clear. The live streaming is, is a fantastic tool. There are those of our people that um, have disabilities, that are traveling, that have uh, compromised people. Um, there are real reasons why the live stream is always going to be with us. And I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for our people that have managed to pull together and, and present that in a great fashion. And so for everyone who's in that category and several others that I, I'm not imagining or recognizing, you're, you're not only blessed by this, but we're glad to bless you by this, and that's a fantastic thing. But then there's a whole other category of people, of individuals who, who now have broken patterns of, of engagement, that now view that church can actually be something that we just see through a television and then if I don't like it, I'll change the channel. Or if I'm watching a beautiful message that Mickey's prepared, crafted, powerfully, point by point to reach a, a, a summation of, of, of knowledge and understanding of the Spirit, but we're watching it and, and, and we decide, you know, it's, it's a little slow right now, so I'm gonna, I, I don't even like that point. Let me fast forward through that point. And not only that, but what I'm doing, I'm also multitasking and watching something else and slapping one of the kids. But, but I go to church. You don't! Again, there are those who need that, and and that's appropriate, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for the rest of you that are really lazy bums and have fallen into a pattern that is unhealthy, you need to get off your couch, off your butt, and into church. Now, I know for the most part I'm speaking to a really righteous crowd here, and you're sitting here going, why are you telling us this, okay? Um, Because you need to understand, if nothing else, why we do gather. It's not about a formality of coming together, singing a few songs, shaking a few hands, and walking out the door. There's a dynamic that occurs when the church is in the flesh together. We're encouraged. And, and for those of you that think that this is the rant of the insecure, no, our services right now are packed out. we got people out in the atrium all over the place. This is not the rant of the insecure. This is the rant of the righteous, okay? 
saying that we need to be incarnational. We need to be in the flesh. We need to see one another. We need to watch when someone's hurting. We need to have the sense when someone's absent of saying someone's absent. We miss all of that in this other realm. And again, it's a good thing when used properly. But the church at its core is incarnational. It's part of why we meet together. There's a principle to church, and it's in the flesh. We used to say something ways back. We used to say that we don't go to church. We used to say we are the church. Some of you still remember that. And when we say that, we don't say that with arrogance. We are the church. We don't say that with embarrassment. We're the church. We say that with humility and a brokenness of individuals who God at one point in time in our disfigurement bent down and kissed us and drew us into salvation. And so we say calmly but strongly without any hint of arrogance that we are the church. And so I'm going to ask for those present and for those at home that can align with this that we could say that together. So I'll just say the first line and we'll say it again the second line. We don't say that we go to church. We say that we are the church. That we are the church incarnational. That we come together in the flesh. That we are God's spirit working through us to do great things. To minister in great ways to many other situations and circumstances. Whether that's enabling with our funding or our volunteering or with our actions or our words. With recognizing that we are the only church that some people will ever see. That relative of yours whose political views are completely horrendous to you. You are the only Christ they may ever encounter. How will you engage them? That person at work, the individual who you engage in your neighborhood, all of these things. So what does this mean then for my life? If I'm the incarnational church, what does it mean for my political views, for my sexuality, for my, how I spend my money, how I, how, how I think, how I engage, what I do with my time? All of that has impact if we are, in fact, the incarnational church. Augustine says that God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man, Jesus Christ, became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you're able to do, you might reach God who was formerly impossible to you. That's what it meant for us. And we in turn can turn and be that for other individuals. Now, there's another implication with this whole incarnational thing. Jesus gathers with his disciples for a final time. And he has um, the celebration of what they would have known as the Passover. The Passover was this really powerful event um, as the children left Egypt, and if you don't want to read the scripture, then go see the Prince of Egypt, okay, and watch the television show, whatever. Capture some of it, at least. 
And so a, a lamb is slain, the blood is shed, spread over a doorpost, and the angel of death, seeing the blood of that innocent lamb, passes over that house and no one dies. And in turn, they're freed up from their, their slavery. And so forever they, they would have the Passover meal, even to this day, that would mark the time of, of that, that, that freedom from death and, and that freedom from slavery and all that would be part of that. It was a very solemn moment, but it was also an extremely celebratory moment. So Jesus gathers with his disciples, and he's going to share this with them. And today, I'm going to um, have you do something that we've never done here before in this setting. I'm going to ask right now that the uh, uh, ushers would come forward and begin to serve you communion. Now, we have... The, the bread in one cup, we'll stop these protocols another month's time probably. So for, for right now, the bread's in one cup, uh, uh, the wine's in the other, and you can take these. And as this is being dispersed, here's the deal. If you're a follower of Christ, feel free to take hold. If, if you're not, you're exploring things, then just let it pass. You don't have to be a member of the church, but if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome, whether you're a member or not, just to join us in this. Keep hold of both, and we're going to take them together at a specific time in a few minutes of time. And so as these are being passed out, as you're taking hold and as you're separating, I, I like to take them and separate them off and I, I put the bread in one hand the cup in the other hand. As we're doing this, um, I want to explain to you a little bit. Jesus gathers with his disciples at this Passover meal. He takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. The implication is my body's being broken and with later scriptures we can say that my body's being broken so that you can be made complete and you become now my body, my hands and feet in this world with the Holy Spirit working in you. You are not God nor are you little gods but you have a portion of my spirit. He takes then a cup. Now, here's the interesting thing. There would have been four cups of wine at this event. This was a really great event. Okay. We had four cups of wine. Each one had a specific meaning. It's believed that Jesus took what would have been the third cup, which was referred to as the cup of redemption. It was to remember redemption. Then he would have said at that time, this is representing my blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sin. So he's pointing out and drawing out and saying, all that happened in Egypt, all that you've celebrated for, for centuries past, all this was to point to me. I am the lamb, the innocent lamb, sacrificed for the sins of the world. My blood being shed on the wood of this cross is the same as the blood being spread across the doorposts of the house. I am your freedom. I am your salvation. I am your redemption. I am the sacrifice that settles all debts. And he's telling this to them. And this is what communion or Eucharist meant. So it was a solemn moment. But there's also a, a celebration. There's a completion of something in this. Now, here's an interesting sub-point. Because we say sometimes and we think, and I, I hear this from people at times, well, we can't, not all of us can be like you or like this person, whoever their imagination is. That's a great Christian, a solid person. The disciples weren't either. Check out the scripture where Jesus has just served them communion. And the moment it's done practically, they start to fight amongst themselves on who's the greatest. 
Hey, Peter, who do you think is the greatest among us at the table? I, I think it's me. What do I think? I think it's you? No, I think it's me. You, don't, oh, you think it's Judas? Maybe. I don't know. And they begin to fight amongst themselves. They'd walked with Jesus for three years. He's giving them their last words here at this Last Supper, and they're still scrapping over who's going to be the greatest. They're idiots. They're us. If they can follow Christ, if they can do what they did, what that means is we can too. We think they're all saints from the ground up. No. And so he passes these things out and he says, you are now. This is my flesh. This is my blood. There's something in this that's been placed that even now as we participate in this, there's something unique about this moment of time. Theologians can't really even quite discern the fullness of what it is, but we know it's not just a piece of bread and a cup of wine, that there's, there's something when we gather together as the church in the flesh, that wherever two or three gather, he's there. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, we're going to do communion different. There's a song that's been written for us here in this gathering. It comes from another gathering that Jake was a part of, but, but uh, um, our people wrote it. And it's part of the celebratory aspect. In this song, there's going to be a point in time where it says, as we eat. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to eat. There's another part that says, as we drink. That'll be your indication to drink now. For those of you that are musically inclined, um, can't read the lyrics properly, don't grasp any of the rest, watch me. I'll be up here, and if nothing else, I'm just going to go, hey. You can follow that. Hey. But this is part of the song. I want you to listen to the song. I want you to understand the idea of the church incarnational. I want you to understand for a moment as we take of this that while it's a very solemn moment, that it's also a time of celebration, a time of identification. But let's begin with a reflection. So, Lord, we come before you this morning as your church. We have been rescued and redeemed by you. Every blessing we have comes from your hand. It's by your blood that we are made worthy to be in the presence of God. And so, Lord, we come in this gathering as your church, empowered by your spirit, believing in your word. We ask that you would examine our lives, that, Lord, without condemnation, if there's areas that we need to be shaped and, and trimmed on, that, that you would convict us of those things, whether it's our attendance in a gathering, whether it's our giving, whether it's our volunteer, whether it's just our mindset, our, our looking to the past, our, our hatreds, our hurts, whatever, Lord, whatever needs to be trimmed from us, sliced from us, chopped off from us, cut away, then, Lord, do that in this moment. Let us set our eyes on you and become more like you. And in that way, truly be your church. So, Lord, we invite you in this time to inhabit this moment as your church stands before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?
us rejoice and have no fear. Our God is with us, He is near. Let us remember what He has done. Let us receive and let us love. We sing that again. Let us rejoice and have no fear. Our God is with us. He is near. Let us remember what He has done. Let us receive and let us love as we we receive we receive we are healed as we heal we are joyful and in our joy we believe as we drink we receive we receive we are healed as we heal we are joyful and in our joy we of you that are in this room now and those watching my live stream to not in any way misunderstand my passion as anger. It's not. It's passion for the church incarnational. And my desire for those of you that have been slack on this 
and those that you will encounter that you're going to share this word with, that they would come and find the fullness of what this fellowship means. Because you need this. We need this. I need this. He goes on in Ephesians then, and he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. And in the original Greek it says, um, social media too. <laughs> that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We're going to pray and we're going to wrap this up. For those of you that are here for the members gathering, we'll be giving a 15-minute break and then 10-minute, you need to register at the back. I think there'll be some stations there if you remember, register, and then we'll be gathering here and just covering things quickly. So don't wander too far, but continue on about 10 minutes' time. For the rest of us, we'll be dismissed. And for some of you, you'll just switch to another station. But I hope that something of this will have stuck. So God, we come before you as your church, redeemed people, twisted by sin, but restored by your hand. We walk with humility, but we have a clear boldness to our statement of being your church. I pray, God, that you continue to guide us in the things that we do, in who we are becoming, and who you want us to be. We commit all these things into your hands as the head of the church and of this body. In the name of Jesus Christ, we now commit those things in your name. And the church said...